At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome back to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 7, Capitalism, Part 3. Last time we spoke, I outlined the rise of the first era of globalization, its fall, the rise of consumer capitalism in the United States, and the beginning of the Great Depression. In this segment, I will trace the rise of Keynesian economics and the Bretton Woods Agreement and their subsequent falls. As we saw in our last segment, by 1933, the international market had ceased to exist and the world was caught up in the greatest depression in recorded history. Millions were out of work, and people began to seriously question the viability of democracy and capitalism. People in the West began to look to the Soviet Union, fascist Italy, and later Nazi Germany as alternative forms of government with their centralized economies for inspiration. By the late 1930s, even in the West, many economists questioned the utility of free markets and economies controlled by big business and foresaw any future growth as directed by the state. Out of the Depression grew a new economic school of thought known as Keynesian economics, named after its founder, John Maynard Keynes, an English economist. To simplify, Keynes argued that the economy could be managed by the state in an organized, intelligent manner through fiscal and monetary policy. He believed it was necessary to balance the interests of the whole community against the animal spirits that were the force behind the markets. Keynes argued that the economy was more than the rational decisions made by individuals as proposed by classical economists like Adam Smith or Marx. Keynes argued that emotions, moods, and accidents also played a role in the system and that the government needed to spur growth to revive the animal spirits to restart the market. During a depression, the rich would invest their money in things like gold and bonds versus lending their money or making investments into new businesses. Therefore, it was the job of government to spend money on projects and the such to restart growth in the economy until the rich felt it was safe to begin to invest again in the market. Keynesian economics would become the dominant economic school of thought in the West during the Cold War until the 1980s. By 1932, the United States had elected a new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who won by a landslide. He and the Democrats had a national mandate to end the Depression with any means possible. Roosevelt saw the Depression as a war or national catastrophe, and not just as an economic downturn. Therefore, he was willing to use the power of the state in extraordinary efforts to end the Depression. In a program named the New Deal, he focused on reforming the economic system, relief for those hit hardest through public works projects, and the expansion of the welfare state, which he hoped would end the Depression. Industrial relations were restructured around state-sanctioned collective bargaining, and the federal government assumed a more active role in the economy. But the biggest change came in fiscal policy. By the late 1930s, the getting and spending of money by the federal government had become the focus and hope of the liberals for the economy. 
Unlike in the Soviet Union, the state wouldn't need to control major businesses. The U.S. government would structure the economy and society via monetary and fiscal policy. Consumer capitalism found a second life under the New Deal. Many liberals argued that the Depression had been the result of a shortage of consumption rather than a fundamental problem with capitalism. They advocated a planned economy to balance the narrow self-interest of business with that of consumers who are a crucial part of the larger community and whose interests need to be taken better into account. They argued that labor, unions, government spending, social security, and a living wage all supported consumer demand. They also instituted programs to ensure that consumers were better protected against buying defective products. Out of this came the theory known as the velocity of money. The theory argues that wealth concentration in a few hands led to excessive savings and only minimal spending. The rich spend maybe 10% of their income, whereas the middle class and working poor spent somewhere between 70 to 90% of their income. Therefore, in a consumer capitalist society, it was preferable to redistribute wealth as much as possible to the middle class and working poor, hence stabilizing the economy against events like the Great Depression. Corporations by the mid-1930s had a very negative image and the, with the general public. Fortune magazine argued that big businesses had to frame its, themselves less a profit-driven model versus a public utility, a battery of institutions that exist primarily to serve the needs of American society. They argued that American business had to become as important as the church in American society. Companies tried to fight back by rallying around the, the National Association of Manufacturers, or NAM. Founded in 1895, the group had been the conservative voice of business for decades, but had been reformed in 1931 by a group called the Brass Hats. They believed that business had to work together to create a comprehensive public relations campaign to save capitalism. NAM's membership grew from about 2,500 members in 1935 to 8,000 by 1941. Over a six-year period, NAM's public relations budget would grow from about 500000 to a $1 million a year, or about $160 million in today's money. Learning from their experience with the CPI, many companies took up this challenge, such as DuPont, GE, IBM, and Goodyear. GM, for example, set up a traveling exhibit called the Parade of Progress, which made a 20,000-mile tour of the United States in 1936. Organized at every stop by local chambers of commerce and GM car dealers, the exhibit outlined America's past, present, and future, which would be shaped by corporate America and technology. NAM also began a considered effort to appeal to America's youth, providing libraries and schools with reading materials favorable to corporations. There was also a national media strategy which utilized radio, movies, documentaries, newspapers, magazines, and billboards. By 1938, every location in the country with a population of 2,500 had at least one of these billboards. This effort culminated with the World's Fair of 1939. Unlike past World Fairs where business had looked to showcase their latest products for sale, the 1939 World's Fair saw corporations working together to advance a common vision of the future built on paternal corporate power, science, and technology. RCA displayed their new home television for the first time. Westinghouse demonstrated the Namatron, an electric brain, or an early computer. May the 4th was declared IBM Day, and IBM showcased its latest accounting machine. The General Motors Pavilion included the fair's most popular attraction, the Futurama, which took visitors on a tour of the United States of 1960. 
The exhibit called Highways and Horizons emphasized how a national highway system would create a greater America. The Great Depression and its effects would play an important role in the thinking of Cold War leaders. As a result, many Cold War leaders would question the ability of liberal democracy to function under economic pressure and its ability to stand up to radical forces like Marxism or fascism. They would also question the stability of free market lazy fair capitalism. On the eve of the Second World War, the essence of the New Deal was captured in FDR's Four Freedoms State of the Union Address. In the speech, FDR outlined four basic freedoms for the modern period. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. The United States had come out of the 1930s with its faith in democracy firm, but with a reformed capitalist system which offered a welfare safety net. In contrast to the other economic systems that developed in the period, such as Italian fascism, Japanese imperialism, German Nazism, or Stalinism of the Soviet Union. When put to the test against fascism, Japanese imperialism, and Nazism, in the following years, consumer capitalism was shown to be more efficient. The factories of General Motors, General Electric, Ford, and U.S. Steel would outproduce the Axis powers, as the United States would not only supply its own forces, but provide billions of dollars worth of goods to Great Britain and the Soviet Union, or two-thirds of all the equipment used by the Allies. By the end of the war, U.S. factories had produced 300,000 planes. In contrast, Germany only produced some 177,000 planes, and Japan only 71,000. The United States produced some 102,000 tanks, only outdone by the Soviet Union, which produced some 6,000 more, but still far more than the 67,000 produced by Germany. The United States also built some 6,771 ships during the war, with second place Britain far distant at 890. American production and consumer capitalism played a critical role in the Allied victory in the Second World War. Many business leaders ex eventually accepted the new realities of the post-war period and tried to work closely with government and unions. By the late 1940s, top marginal tax incomes were about 90%, and corporate taxes remained high as well. Many businesses even took on the rhetoric of the New Deal in an attempt to improve their images. A growing number of corporations initiated pension funds, health plans, and other social security policies that their workers now expected. Business leaders felt that if they didn't provide these benefits, people would turn back towards government and the survival of the free market would once again be in jeopardy. Even with the election of Eisenhower in 1952, most of the Republican Party had lost faith in laissez-faire capitalism. Eisenhower himself believed it was the job of government to, quote, prevent or correct abuses springing from the unregulated practices of a private economy, close quote. Eisenhower famously mistrusted both business and unions as short-sighted and selfish. Consumer capitalism flourished during the post-war period from 1950 to 1969. During this period, the physical landscape of the nation changed and the vision of the American dream of having a house in the suburbs with a car, a dog, and 2.5 kids became pervasive. So many people, I'm sure, are asking, like, well, where does 2.5 children come from? 2.5 is because most television programs and a lot of material that came out during the period showed the families with typically either two or three children. Hence, the median of that is 2.5. It was argued that economic inequality would be ended not through a physical reallocation of wealth from rich to poor, but rather as an ever-growing economy built around the dynamics of increased productivity and mass purchasing power, which would expand the overall pie without reducing the size of any portion. 
The new suburbs were a landscape of mass consumption. Between 1947 and 1953, the suburban population increased by 43%. Mass-built communities of single-family homes or Levitt towns sprang up across the countryside to meet the needs of the post-war housing shortage. These new homes were filled with the best appliances the consumer society had to provide, like refrigerators, toasters, washing machines, and televisions, which turned living rooms into virtual sales rooms as corporations could advertise to Americans on a daily basis as never before. National output of goods and services doubled between 1946 and 1956 and would double again by 1970. Family income during this period would double as well. There were minor recessions in 1953 to 54, 57 to 58, and again in 1960 to 61, but these recessions were quickly followed by recoveries that lifted American wages and standards of living higher. This growth was fueled by government spending through the GI Bill, which helped put millions of GIs through college after the war, allowing them to get better jobs, and allowed millions more to buy their first homes in the new suburbs. Secondly, the, bu- the boom was fueled by savings. During the war, Americans had worked long hours in factories or at the front and saved the vast majority of their income, as consumer products and even essentials were rationed at the time. However, by the early 1960s, most of these funds were exhausted. The economy was able to keep the boom going, though, through a combination of consumer credit, via credit cards, and mortgage debt. By 1955, at least half of house appliances and 60% of car sales involved some form of credit. Moreover, the rate at which families were going into debt was rising faster than income. Some economists did challenge the Keynesian economics. They organized themselves into what became the Mount Pyrland Society in 1947. Most Keynesian economists of the period were concerned with mathematical equations and improved statistical forecasting techniques. By contrast, the economists of the Mount Purlin Society were far more philosophically focused on the role of freedom and the state in economic life. Friedrich Hayek, an Austrian economist, argued that economic planning by the state would eventually override freedom. Moreover, he argued on a practical level that the marketplace was so complex, the network of transactions so intricate, that the state couldn't hope to manage it or replicate it. This very complication, argued Hayek, would make consensus and economic planning by the state virtually impossible. Therefore, a government given the power to plan the economy would inevitably resort to coercion, propaganda, and violence. Hayek recognized the unfairness and arbitrary nature of the market economy, but he argued that submission to the free market and capitalism was infinitely preferable to dictatorial rule. Other free market economists warned of the dangers of government deficits and inflation as a result of large government spending on the welfare state. These ideas by Hayek, Milton Friedman, and others would have a profound impact on the thinking of American and British business leaders and later American and British conservative politicians like Barry Goldwater, Margaret Thatcher, and Ronald Reagan. As the 60s progressed, They witnessed a challenge to the existing social order spearheaded by a dynamic youth uprising. The cultural sensibilities of the 1960s made a decisive break with the dominant forces and social feelings of the post-war era. Conformity and consumerism were challenged by a new ethos that celebrated diversity and sought to maximize freedom and self-realization of the individual. The long-standing cultural and social monopoly of white males was broken as the values of formerly subaltern groups rose to the fore. This brought about a dynamic change in marketing and advertising. 
the discovery of demographics and market segmentation meant companies more or less stopped trying to produce products that appealed to everyone, but instead focused on marketing specific products to specific groups of people, be it based on race, income, age, religion, or ideological background. No longer would some Americans buy to fit in with the Joneses, but to demonstrate that they were wise to the game to express their revulsion with the sham and conformity of consumerism. A perfect example of this is the Che Guevara shirts. Che was, in fact, a revolutionary, but in buying these T-shirts, people are supporting the very system he fought against, consumer capitalism. In this changed marketplace, the physical property of the products counted for less as brand image, consumer identity, and advertising took on greater importance. The epic struggle between Coke and Pepsi is the best example of this. Over the first half of the 20th century, Coke dominated the soft drink market with a single product that was consumed by everyone in all walks of life. Pepsi challenged Coke's dominance in the 1960s by appealing to the youth and grew rapidly. The ensuing war between the two soft drink makers has much less to do with their products than with the psychic benefits promised by each, with a war of symbolism both sides have invested billions in over the years. This, coupled with other new advertising methods which focused on the youth, absorbed the countercultural movement of the 1960s and 1970s, which is best illustrated by the fact that the 25th anniversary of Woodstock, which had been the counterculture's greatest triumph, had been corporatized with commercial sponsors such as Pepsi and Haggadahs and ticket prices at $135. In the context of the Cold War, America's economic prosperity became an American trump card by which it demonstrated its superiority over the Soviet Union and the socialist economic system. The most common way consumer capitalism figured in propaganda of the period was as evidenced by of the economic egalitarianism it made possible, a distribution of American abundance that bested the Soviets at their own game of creating a classless society. The best-known example of this is the famous kitchen table debate between Vice President Richard Nixon and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev at the American Exposition in Moscow in 1959, where America flaunted its latest model homes, appliances, cars, fashions, and offered free Pepsi. Nixon boasted that the three-fourths, or 44 million Americans, owned their own homes. He also pointed out that Americans had a right to choose from a variety of products and services, in contrast to Soviet citizens who bought what was approved by government officials. Internationally, the United States also helped to provide economic stability and prosperity to the rest of the world. After the Second World War, Great Britain and the United States were intent on not repeating the Great Depression and with it another world war. Therefore, they sought to stabilize the international economic system through the Bretton Woods Agreement. The treaty established the World Bank, which began to help the developing world with infrastructure and debt relief loans in the 1960s, and the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF. The IMF works to improve the economies of its member countries through promoting international monetary cooperation, international trade, high employment, exchange rate stability, sustainable economic growth, and making resources available to member countries in financial difficulty. Under Brenton Woods, the dollar replaced the pound as the international currency. The dollar was still partially backed by gold. Each U.S. dollar was 1 35ths an ounce of gold, or put another way, one ounce of gold was worth $35. And in 1958, most nations had made their currencies convertible to the dollar. Brenton Woods kept currency values stable and currency markets open to exchange trade and long-term investment, but imposed barriers to financial flows. 
Bretton Woods required governments to restrict the short-term movement of capital across borders, allowing different nations to maintain different monetary policies, especially in regards to interest rates. Therefore, if a nation like France raised taxes on the rich, it didn't have to worry about capital escaping abroad like today, or have to worry about the French wealthy investing overseas versus in their own nation. The social democratic welfare state was also an integral part of the Brenton Woods system. It facilitated political agreement between labor and business on the desirability of international economic integration. While business prospered, the working class also did very well. But Brenton Woods started to significantly damage the American economy. By 1949, virtually every developed country had devalued their currency against the dollar making it harder for American goods to compete in foreign markets while foreign goods sold for cheaper in the United States, especially as the economies of Europe and Japan recovered from World War II. By 1968, the United States imported more cars than it exported, and by 1971, the United States imported more than it exported for the first time in living memory. The United States had also racked up large debts from its defense spending, the war in Vietnam, and the Great Society programs of the 1960s. Instead of raising taxes even higher to pay for these expenses, President Johnson chose to borrow money and print money or inflation to pay for these government expenses. Under Bretton Woods, foreign governments could redeem their dollars for gold, which they did at an alarming rate. More disturbingly, there was not enough gold in the world, let alone Fort Knox, to redeem all of the world's dollars. The United States could counter the sell-off by raising interest rates, cutting spending, and price controls, but this would surely drive the nation into recession, a prospect no politician relished. Instead, President Nixon ended the Bretton Woods Agreement, ending the dollar's convertibility to gold. Coinciding with these economic challenges, the United States had ceased to be a major producer of oil and was now dependent on foreign oil, especially oil from the Middle East and Latin America. After 1973, the accumulated tensions of the post-war era came to a head. The value of the dollar continued to fall despite price controls and tariffs imposed by the Nixon administration. Growth in the developed world slowed to half its post-war rate for over a decade. Unemployment tripled in Western Europe and North America. Inflation went to four times the post-war average. The price of oil, the lifeblood of the modernized industrial economy, went to $30 a barrel or $160 a barrel in today's prices. By 1980, the United States and Great Britain both elected new conservative leaders who fundamentally transformed their societies away from the welfare state model of Etley and FDR and back to a decentralized market-driven economy. Nevertheless, many social safety nets remained in place, such as nationalized health care in the United Kingdom and social security in the United States. Paul Volcker, the new head of the Federal Reserve appointed by Jimmy Carter in 1979, committed the Federal Reserve to crushing inflation. The Fed pushed short-term interest rates up to 20%, keeping levels high until 1982. This drove the economy into recession. Business bankruptcies rose by 50%. Manufacturing output slowed. The median family income fell by 10%, and unemployment rose to 11%. It did, however, lower inflation to below 4% for the next 20 years. By 1983, inflation had eased and the economy had rebounded, and the United States began a sustained period of economic growth. However, the unemployment rate nationwide remained high throughout the decade, a trend that was prolonged and exacerbated by the early 1990s recession. Reagan based his economic program on the theory of supply-side economics, which advocated reducing tax rates so people keep more of what they earned. 
The theory was that lower tax rates would induce people to work harder and longer, and that this, in turn, would lead to more savings and investment, resulting in more production and stimulating overall economic growth. While the Reagan-inspired tax cuts served mainly to benefit wealthier Americans, the economic theory behind the cuts argued that benefits would extend to lower-income people as well because higher investment would lead to new job opportunities and higher wages. The central theme of Reagan's national agenda, however, was his belief that the federal government had become too big and intrusive. In the early 80s, while he was cutting taxes, Reagan was also slashing social programs. Reagan also undertook a campaign throughout his tenure to reduce or eliminate government regulations affecting the consumer, the workplace, and the environment. At the same time, however, he feared that the United States had neglected its military in the wake of the Vietnam War, so he successfully pushed for big increases in defense spending. Steadfast in his commitment to lower taxes, Reagan signed the most sweeping federal tax reform measure in 75 years during his second term. This measure, which had widespread Democratic as well as Republican support, lowered income tax rates, simplified tax brackets, and closed loopholes, taking an important step toward taxing low-income Americans more equitably. Still, serious problems remain. The chronically poor failed to benefit as the economy improved. The combination of tax cuts and higher military spending overwhelmed more modest reductions in the spending on domestic programs. As a result, the federal budget deficit swelled even beyond the levels it had reached during the recession of the early 80s. From $74 million in 1980, the federal budget deficit rose to $221 million in 1986. It fell back to $150 million in 1987, but then started growing again. Some economists worried that heavy spending and borrowing by the federal government would reignite inflation, but the Federal Reserve remained vigilant about controlling price, price increases, moving quickly to raise interest rates any time it seemed a threat. Internationally, with the end of the Bretton Woods Agreement, capital began to flow back into the United States, attracted by high interest rates. Why buy German bonds at 7% when you could buy American at 15%? This forced the rest of the world to follow. This left most of the developing world nations without a financial cushion, as investors worried poor nations might not repay their loans and struggle to compete for funds on the international bond market. In desperation, they stopped payments to their creditors, thus scaring the bond market even more. The more countries went bankrupt, the less money bankers lent to the developing world. By 1983, 34 developing world nations had renegotiated their debt, and many more were in serious trouble. Latin America in whole spent nearly half of its earnings to service their debts, leaving little to buy the imported goods they needed. By the end of the Cold War and the early 1990s, many viewed market capitalism as a superior economic system to socialism or centrally planned economies. Both the Soviet Union and China moved to abandon their Marxist economies. Despite the tribulations of the 20th century, capitalism outlived fascism, Nazism, and Marxism, despite minor holdouts in North Korea and Cuba, going on to become once again the dominant economic system by the mid-1990s. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 7, Part 3, Capitalism. Join us for Episode 8, America Rearms, where we will examine America's response to Stalin's moves in Eastern Europe. Feel free to comment and to rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast to find out our latest news and Cold War content. And don't forget to feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcast at gmail.com.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.